Welcome to IEQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Yes, the rules have changed. The rules have changed. Good day wherever you're listening from. And welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio, for Friday, April 10th, 2009. This week, episode 120 comes to you from beautiful Studio B in Coriopolis, Pennsylvania. My name is Joe Hughes of Radio Joe. Here with me in the studio is the wingman, Chris Boisel. Good afternoon, Joe. Chris at the controls. Joining us remote is my co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff Slotnick. Hello, Cliff. Hey, good hey, Joe. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, listeners. Good day. And uh, today we also will have our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Wild, joining us here at halftime. We'll bring him in. Today's segments include the microband trivia question. We've got Mr. Ed Light, certified industrial hygienist with Building Diagnostics, LLC. And IE Connections, what's news with Glenn Fellman? Then we'll have, I'm sorry, Tom Scarlett is subbing for Mr. Fellman this week. Uh, welcome, Tom. And then we'll go back to our interview with Ed, and we'll get back in and finish up with the roundup. We'll bring everyone in. We've been updating and adding a blog to that IAQ Radio website every week, so check it out at www.iaqradio.com. Let's thank our sponsors before we get started. First, uh, we want to thank a new advertiser, Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions. Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions is the leader in portable mobile-based, PC-based indoor environmental monitors and reporting software. Check them out at wolfsensing.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Learn about them at legends-enviro.com. Microband Systems, the microbial management company at microbandsystems.com. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IEQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising informational available at ieconnections.com. Dry Ease Products, providing equipment for drying water damaged homes and buildings. Dry Ease is first in drying solutions at dri-eaz.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at jondon.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their products and services. All right. To join the show, you just call 724-444-7444. Our show ID is 1547. Press the number 1, and you can join the show. You can also download the show by going to our website at iaqradio.com. Follow the link that says go to the show, or you can download it from iTunes. Don't forget, we also offer IICRC continuing education credits and IAQ Council renewal credits by emailing me and requesting a quiz. My email is joe.hughes at iaqtraining.com. You can also get requests, suggestions, etc. by emailing me or the Z-Man at 
Cliff Zlotnick at unsmoke.com. Last but not least, please visit the IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com. Let's take it over to Cliff for the microband trivia question for this week. Thanks, Joe. Congratulations to Amber Means with Pro. with Prosteam Inc. in Roswell, New Mexico, for correctly answering last week's microband trivia question. You'll win a cool prize by outcompeting IAQ radio listeners and being the first person to correctly answer the microband trivia question. Submitting your answer is easy. Simply email it to cliffzlotnick at unsmoke.com. Now for the microband trivia question for Friday, April 10th, 2009. Name the term which represents the legal limit in the United States for exposure of an employee to a chemical substance or physical agent. Back to you, Joe. Thank you, Cliff. All right. Today's guest is Mr. Ed Light of Building with Building Dynamics, LLC. Ed has specialized in indoor environmental sciences since 1982 when he directed a pioneering indoor air quality program for the West Virginia Department of Health. He's a senior fellow of the American Industrial Hygiene Association and has published extensively. As a uh, consultant with Building Dynamics, he's conducted over 1,000 indoor air quality investigations, including assessments of the White House, South Pole Station, and Sing Sing Prison. In his other life, Ed is the lead singer and first chair banjoist with the all-new genetically altered Jug Band and the author of There's a Fungus Among Us. And in fact, he's our first guest ever to bring his own introductory, send his own intro music. So, Chris, if you don't mind. Hello, Ed. Do we have you? Yeah, I'm here. Great. That's that's a nice little song. We're going to play the whole whole thing at the end of the show here. We played another one. There's a fungus among us before the show. And uh, it's great to have someone with a, a good sense of humor on the show. We uh, wanted to start, Ed, with a little... I wanted to get a little background on you for some of our listeners that aren't as familiar with your background as uh, maybe I am or others. But uh, what led you to develop the first... IAQ program for the West Virginia Department of Health? Well, I was uh, brought on in uh, 1982 as state industrial hygienist at a time when the Labor Department was uh, taking over as the, uh, the heavy industrial uh, type traditional industrial hygiene. And sitting on my desk when I walked in was uh, about 100 complaint letters from mobile home residents saying they were getting real sick and they were smelling something funny that might be formaldehyde. And uh, I was uh, given the opportunity to start evaluating that when very little was known about how to assess the problem and the health effects and what to do about it. 
and uh, that became the uh, beginning of our program, which, uh, of course, the money was in asbestos in those days, and we set up our asbestos control program. And uh, then I developed a program with all our county sanitarians to spend a little bit of their time responding to the public's IAQ complaints, and I had them trained in uh, uh, general ways of assessing and solving the problems, and uh, that was pretty much our program back then. Well, you had a bunch of complaints sitting on a desk when, uh, and nobody knew what to do with them? Oh, absolutely. Uh, indoor environment was uh, just beginning to be recognized at that time. My you know, formal training was in uh, environmental science, and uh, it was a you know, great opportunity to, to, to step in and, and do some of the basic science. And, and uh, what I actually ended up doing was working with uh, your traditional public health, environmental health people uh, to uh, you know, use their methods to look at this new field. And uh, I guess the rest is history. Well, speaking of history, let's let's go back a little bit in time and and talk a little bit about when you started building dynamics. Or if I I'm not sure I even know correctly that you did start building dynamics. How did you get involved with building dynamics, Ed? Well, I guess it was in my mind, and and I started it about uh, oh gosh, more than 15 years ago uh, uh, to do consulting in indoor air quality, and I recognized that the the real important work was not necessarily an industrial hygiene, but an engineering and understanding buildings with the health and the overall problem solving uh, was something I could contribute. But I uh, brought on a partner, Jim Bailey, a uh, very good PE mechanical engineer, and uh, we've been uh, sort of in business ever since on, on, a, on a small specialized scale. Now, I know that you were also instrumental in the um, EPA indoor air quality um, guide that most people are familiar with, the 1990 version, and now they've got the I-Beam program. I, was that prior to starting Building Dynamics, and how did you get involved with that project? Uh, I'm not quite sure uh, how I got hooked up with EPA. That was my actually my one EPA contract over, over my, all my period in, in the field. Uh, around 1989, uh, I had developed my methods, as I said, as an outgrowth of traditional environmental health mentoring I, I already had in the field. And uh, EPA act actually asked me to help, uh, along with Terry Brennan and Bill Turner, to, to put together a guide uh, that would address indoor air quality complaints and improve building conditions and something that was usable by the, the generalists. And uh, so I had a, a a you know, big hand in writing portions of that book and developing the overall strategy. And I'm proud to say it's it still uh, really stands today. Uh, after all the noise and research in the field, the, the basic way to understand and, and solve an, an IQ complaint is in that book. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more, Ed. We still use it regularly. Cliff, let's turn it over to you for a moment. Well, you know, one of the things that it said on your website, Ed, was that you – were involved with the state of the indoor air quality at the White House. Uh, can you tell us how you got involved in a little bit about that project? Well, that uh, was actually one of my, my super consulting projects. Uh, I was, was called in uh, to investigate complaints. I was actually uh, doing some work with GSA at the time in the West Wing offices, 
and that was was way back there, actually in the in the uh, what's known now as the Lewinsky period. And the uh, complainants, uh, you know, they were uh, rather snooty. They were too important to talk to a lowly industrial hygienist, uh, which is, of course, that's always the starting point of my investigation. You have to understand the complaint and the patterns to know what problem you're trying to solve. Uh, so I went ahead and conducted a thorough inspection. I looked everywhere, including looking under the desk, and I didn't see anything unusual. And I guess my, my timing was off or I would have broken that story. And that's pretty much much it. You know, the, the place was clean and dry and well ventilated. And uh, it was a nice old building. And they went and told me their complaint. And I told GSA, you know, it's okay unless they let you know uh, uh, a follow-up on that. That's tough to tough to uh, investigate a complaint when they won't tell you what it is, I guess. That would be, uh, what about at the uh, South Pole Station? I know that was a very involved project. Can you, can you give us a little idea of um, what what you were doing in, at the South Pole? Well, uh, this was several years ago, and I was uh, very honored to be requested by the National <coughs> Science Foundation, which owns and runs the research buildings uh, all the way down at the South Pole. And, you know, that was the thrilling adventure of my life to get down there. And we did some very detailed uh, indoor air quality assessments of the buildings. And uh, what was interesting is we found very significant exposures. And the folks down there were happy as clams doing their work and having their adventures. And there was really no health concern. Uh, our findings uh, were published in, in several papers and were used by the National Science Foundation in the redesign of the buildings that I, I guess are down there now, the, the new South Pole Station, uh, which used some of our recommendations. For example, it, it wasn't a real good idea to have uh, heavy machinery running in a, in a uh, garage without ventilation, you know, simple stuff like that. I see. So they had uh, exposures from those types of activities. Oh, yeah. And uh, well, all the workers were just covered with fuel and solvents. And uh, we had we were on severe water restrictions. You know, we had like uh, I think it was two minutes per week of showers allowed, and you couldn't wash your clothes. So everybody stunk like fuel, and and uh, you know the ventilation basically wasn't working in the buildings, and and everybody was happy, no health complaints. I guess they were warm. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, we were happy to be warm. And Cliff, let me turn it over to you. Sure, I've got a two-part question for you, Ed. First of all, where were you on 9-11? And second of all, what types of projects were you involved post-9-11? Well, uh, uh, actually, I was at the beach, and I was scheduled to be staying 9-10, uh, 9-11 uh, uh, back then in the Millennium Hilton, which is right on the World Trade Center site. I was actually doing some consulting to a law firm across the street. And uh, I had a conflicting family vacation, and, and they let me off from that one assignment. So I was at the beach, and, uh, of course, the awful tragedy happened. And then I was retained uh, by a federal agency that, that occupied a few large buildings right in the area. And our first assignment was in a, a, a federal office building that was probably a half a mile from the, from the ground zero, and they were trying to keep it occupied and working. GSA had done all this indoor air quality and outdoor asbestos testing and chemical testing and declared the building safe for occupancy. 
And meanwhile, uh, uh, a fairly large number of employees in the building were, were getting really ill and having symptoms. So, so we went down there a few days later, and uh, we found out that the, the testing done was, was really meaningless. And, and that's uh, kind of one of my overall findings in my career is that there's a real tendency to, to do the easy tests and then draw conclusions on the indoor environment when, in fact, those tests are usually irrelevant to the health and the building evaluation. So in this case, we were able to establish that the, uh, the ongoing fires and the, and the, the crap on the outside uh, of this New York neighborhood were being sucked into the building because the building owner had uh, shut off the outside air, uh, left windows open in areas under renovation, and the building was, of course, they left all the exhausts on, and there was pulling in all this stuff in the building, and those who were getting sick had pre-existing respiratory conditions, and they weren't just getting sick in their office building. When they went out in the street and went home, they were getting sick. And so we, we made recommendations on uh, restoring uh, pressurization to the building and doing the best possible filtration and getting those sick people to their doctor for medical management. Uh, and then we followed that up for the same agency. They had a, a, a building right across the street from the World Trade Center that had been damaged, and you know, wherever the windows open was full of the smoke and the asbestos and all that other horrible stuff. And that building uh, was to be cleaned up, restored, and cleared for occupancy. And what was uh, one of the interesting aspects after 9-11 is every testing company and restoration company under the sun was involved there. And there were competing uh, clearance tests going on in our building. And, of course, we were working for the federal tenant. And uh, the testing companies uh, came up with, uh, when they looked at the dust and asbestos situation, they ran their tests and said the building's fine. We went in, and uh, just using our common sense approach, we started moving back furniture. And, and uh, all the, uh, the stuff from 9-11 dust was still there untouched. We looked in the ducts, which were supposed to have been cleaned. And, of course, the, the contractor had been paid for it and hadn't cleaned them. And then they went ahead and cleaned up the building, and then the uh, testing companies for the other parties kept failing it based on, uh, they said, there's too much dioxin in this building. And so uh, we didn't run tests of our own. We just did a literature review, and we established that nobody ever tests for dioxin on the surfaces, but actually the scientific literature showed that what they were getting was a normal background. When you, when you get this technology into parts per billion, there's all kinds of little things down there at that level and that in fact the building was normal it was, at that point it was completely acceptable to us for reoccupancy and uh so that, that kept us busy for uh the period after 9-11 and what you've been involved with numerous projects over your career here in the indoor air quality industry of those projects which one or two are you the most proud of well Probably on, on the few occasions where I've put together my experience and come out with some overall uh, guidance for assessing and, and solving problems. <clears throat> and the first one that you mentioned was the uh, general complaint of uh, uh, how to respond to indoor air quality complaints in the BAQ document by EPA and NIOSH. And then the second one, uh, I did work for SMACNA, the mechanical contractors, uh, who shared my interest in uh, occupant protection when you're doing major construction in occupied buildings. And uh, I 
put together a guidance document. We updated that recently, and actually it's now, it's, this is kind of a, a little-known secret. It's been adopted by ANSI as an actual standard, providing a guideline for working in uh, doing construction in buildings that are occupied as far as managing air quality. And then uh, finally, I've been uh, more or less forced to specialize in, in mold and moisture management the past several years because that seems to be where the consulting money is uh, just about exclusively going. And from that experience, I've put together a very uh, detailed and I think unique uh, guide working with, with ASTM, a consensus guide, to how to actually evaluate a building, which has uh, very little to do in the overall uh, assessment with, with specific testing and a whole lot to do with uh, good restoration and engineering practices to figure out the moisture in the building, the, the mold, and uh, growth becomes obvious from that, and uh, that should define your uh, restoration. Now, that, that document, the ASTM document, we, uh, we talked before the show, and I think what we'd like to do is try and get Ava Ewing on to uh, go in more detail about that document down the road. And uh, today I'd like to follow up on what you, you said a little bit about the, the restoration industry. What are your general thoughts about the restoration industry, the disaster restoration industry, I guess? And by the way, uh, I want to make sure that listeners know BAQ was the building air quality guide, I, I guess. Well, uh, it, was, it was a little over 25 years ago I, I really got started, and as you said, it was through the public health agency in West Virginia. And at that time, I, I had a lot of respect for the restoration industry's ability to resolve water damage in keeping with our public health object, objectives. When, when the good restorers got involved, we felt very comfortable with them getting in. We had a lot of floods in West Virginia, a lot of water damage. Uh, and, uh, you know, I felt that the uh, procedures being used were uh, very effective. Uh, things have kind of changed since, since what I would call the mold explosion in recent years. Uh, unfortunately, restoration is often based on testing, which does not actually locate the damage. <clears throat> uh, the remediation is often based on bells and whistles. Uh, sanitizers are becoming a thing of the past because basically I attribute this to chemophobia. And finally, clearance testing now allows contaminated sites to be reoccupied while failing restored sites. So, and I don't mean this to reflect on uh, the better, more traditionally based restoration companies out there, but boy, a lot of people jumped into the field and uh, don't know much better. And, and uh, you know, I have some uh, problems with, with the work they're doing. And the biggest problem I see is actually with my fellow uh, CIHs that are relying on, on mold testing and don't necessarily understand buildings and, and moisture. And they're giving the direction to the contractors, which uh, I think in many cases, if you left the contractors alone to their own judgment, that they would do a better job. Cliff? Um, what's your opinion, Ed, on multi-chemical sensitivity, MCS? Uh, I've dealt with complaints uh, that are described as multiple ke sensi chemical sensitivity, and uh, I feel that the label itself is, is, a, is a bit vague and confusing. However, in my training and experience, I strongly believe that uh, 
you know, there's a bell-shaped curve of response to, to pollutants, and there are people at the far end of that bell-shaped curve who can be very sensitive to chemical and biological agents. And we need to understand when we're evaluating the buildings that, that some people may respond at very low levels that others don't, and that in some cases there's poor maintenance or some contamination in a building uh, that uh, may be affecting them and not others and can be fixed most often by better maintenance of the building, and that sometimes these individuals may be so sensitive that they kind of have to manage themselves and, and where they're going to be because uh, essentially the normal background of the world may be giving them some problems. Uh, there are medical aspects of it that are controversial. I, I, mean, I think it's clearly established that some of these complaints are extreme irritation and allergy responses, and uh, certainly uh, more research needs to be done to understand whether other responses are, are taking place uh, in the body. Uh, also, based on my experience, uh, just because a person says they're reacting to something in the building, there could be many other causes. And uh, you know, number one of those causes, they could be having other unrelated medical problems. They could be reacting to other conditions in the building, say, besides mold. You know, mold's the uh, big focus nowadays. Uh, so it's, it's a controversial field, and, and we have tried to understand and respond to it. And I, I think there's still confusion about who's actually affected and what agents are doing it and how industrial hygienists and building owners need to respond. Ed, let me just follow up here. We're almost up to halftime, and before we go into some other issues, I thought uh, we should summarize things by kind of getting your overall, oh, an overview of how you look at an indoor air quality investigation. Who do you talk to first? Who do you talk to second? Who are the most important people to talk to, and, and how do you proceed? Well, usually we're obligated to talk to the head management and the, the politicians first, and, and we're polite. But the real start and the real important first phase of investigation is to talk to the people who actually run the building, who do the work there, and just as important to talk to as many occupants as we can, and we try to sit down with the people who've had complaints and get their observations and understand exactly what they think are the problems. And I'll tell you, at that point, when we work with good building engineers or restoration contractors, they very often know the root causes and the solutions, and, and they've been ignored. And uh, all I'm really doing as a CIH is just putting their stuff in, in my signature on it and basically verifying the building needs to be maintained better. Uh, and then our evaluation proceeds into a, a, you know, a very uh, – uh, good engineering-based study of the systems in the building to see what's doing what, uh, you know, visually-based uh, inspection, we'll look at the cleaning, uh, look at the moisture in the building, and we proceed with, uh, of course, we look at the sources. We don't necessarily test, but we look to see if, the, if there are sources that could cause health problems, are those properly isolated from the occupants, and usually at that point, we'll have enough information to sort things out and make some recommendations. And then uh, in some complex cases, or worse yet, litigation or political cases, you need to go on and to follow up more detailed stuff. You know, I'm glad you uh, – that's exactly where I wanted to go, although there was one group that we had talked about before that I don't know if you mentioned necessarily this 
the name you used with me before, the Sanitarians. Can you talk to us a little bit about them? Oh, yes. Uh, uh, after receiving my general environmental science training, I, I was uh, brought into the environmental health section of, of the state health department, which are uh, staffed by sanitarians, which also have general environmental backgrounds, cover everything from food safety and uh, sewage and water quality uh, to general environmental complaints. And uh, I had uh, real good uh, fortune. I learned a lot from them, uh, from their methods, and I was able to show them some basic principles of uh, uh, air quality. And uh, through that program, we were able to informally jump in and investigate uh, many complaints and, and resolve them. Uh, and uh, they, were, uh, they are continue, continuing to be well-suited to deal with these problems. Although I'm afraid there's a lot of emphasis now on the on the mold testers and the CIH testers, rather than looking for the more common sense approach of our sanitarians. And you also mentioned uh, that you did a follow up to the building air quality. That's a guide for facility managers and uh, um, building maintenance people, essentially, and and also for indoor air quality investigators. But that you did a follow up that. After you know you've done these basic, taken these basic steps, if you needed to go into more detail, you've done a follow-up uh, paper on that, and that was published. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I thought that while the building air quality book covers a, a, a general investigation that is probably sufficient for most cases, uh, I did develop experience working with very good occupational physicians and mechanical engineers on doing a much more technical workup on the complainants and on the building. And uh, that work I uh, crystallized into a, 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 a method which was published uh, in the uh, Indoor Air Quality Handbook, uh, available McGraw-Hill, edited by Jack Spangler at Harvard. And my chapter in that book is essentially a supplement to the EPA, uh, which I did in my own time. You know, EPA never really followed up in that direction showing uh, advanced uh, assessment and, and resolution techniques uh, for these complex indoor air quality situations. I wanted to bring that up because I know at halftime we're going to bring Dr. Wow in, and um, he and I both have a copy of the IAQ handbook and find it uh, to be a very uh, good resource for people working in the uh, indoor air quality world. And I, I didn't even realize, I didn't put the two together that you had written that chapter in there. So. Let's yeah, go to buried in the fine print. Buried in the fine print in the middle of that book is is my chapter. <laughs> well, I'm going to go back and review that again. I really appreciate uh, having you here. Let's. Uh, we're going to go to halftime and then bring you back in a couple minutes. Ed, if that works for you. Sure. Great. Let's start uh, with. Oh. There's the music, Doctor Dieter. Do we have you? Absolutely. Yeah. <clears throat> I'm, uh, I was a little bit distracted over here because somebody is putting in a glass block window in my house, <clears throat> at which time I also noticed that my house sucks. <laughs> yeah, it's coming through there like you will not believe. <laughs> so I guess that is a common problem all over the country. But, yeah, no, I, I think uh, the approach we, uh, uh, we heard about over here is based on common sense, and you know how much I am for common sense. Uh, on one hand, on the other hand, I'm, I'm, I'm for academic training in, in, in whatever field you are going or working in. 
So that is all right. And uh, I certainly do agree you know, that not every certified industrial hygienist is uh, 100% qualified to investigate buildings and you know, any of that. So uh, it took me quite some time to uh, learn about building systems and what to look uh, out for. I just was in, uh, in a facility here in Pittsburgh where there seemed to be a ventilation problem. I really don't think they have a big problem, but um, I could have solved it if I could have, <laughs> if I could have taken that damn computer out of there and do it my way, but that wasn't possible <laughs> because it was a beautiful day, and I said, I would like to have as much fresh air coming in right now. They said, I can't do that because of temperature differences and whatever else it was. So... Um, uh, those are problems in indoor air quality. You and, mentioned another uh, problem, Dieter, that the um, you felt it was a problem that the, uh, I guess the diffusers and the return air were both in the floor, or is that? Well, the, the supply, there is like triple quotation mark, a crawl space. I would say ah, maybe two or three, ah, two and a half feet at best, two feet high. And that, of course, is very uh, uh, good for threading cables through anywhere you want to underneath the floor. Unfortunately, the whole floor area acts as a plenum, and there must be. It's a huge place. I think it's something like 45,000 square feet, the place. And there must be like, I would say, 100, maybe 150 registers in the floor where air is being blown up. Now, I don't look like this one, and they are all uh, adjustable by anybody who lifts up the grill and, and plays with the damper. I don't like that. That's why I like to have them in the ceiling. You, know, you need a ladder or a cherry picker to get up there. The other thing I don't like with these supplies on the ground floor uh, is uh, that, you know, all the dirt that normally would fall down is goes over there. If you step on it, bang, it goes up into the air. So those are a couple of problems that I saw over there. Certainly there's nothing I can do about it. That building is a half a year old, so it's brand new. Interestingly, I asked for uh, balancing data, and that has not been done. So a half a year later, it's not there. I checked the... Um, the filter banks, which were absolutely perfect and well-maintained, uh, the, um, the fan housing and all of this, I mean, well, it's brand new, and the person who is in charge over there, he takes care of it, and he wants to keep it that way, which is wonderful. doesn't happen always. Excellent, Dieter. We'll bring you back for the roundup then. Certainly. Uh, I'll be curious to see what Ed's thoughts are on those uh, floor-level diffusers and registers. Let's... Uh, Real quick here, we want to go over to uh, Tom Scarlett, who's substituting in this week for IE Connections. What's news for Glenn Fellman? Hi, Joe. Thanks for having me on. Uh, welcome. Good to have you. What's news? 
Uh, just coming on to talk about, uh, we just uh, finished the April issue of uh, Indoor Environment Connections. That's out there. This is uh, available at ieconnections.com. We've got some interesting stories this month. Uh, our front page story is uh, about state legislatures around the country that are considering bills that will have new uh, requirements for the IAQ industry or that will have an, an impact on the IAQ world. Um, for example, Virginia just enacted a new law about mold remediation that um, requires landlords to certify that their premises are free of mold and in a more specific way than under the old rules. And this may create an incentive for landlords to uh, to do more mold remediation or, you know, in order to avoid the, uh, the liability from that. That's in Virginia. There's Illinois and New York are also considering some new laws about mold. So we've got a roundup about that. We've also got an update on, uh, you know, this Chinese drywall issue has been a big story uh, down in Florida. And now beyond Florida, actually, Governor Bobby Jindal of Louisiana is asking the federal government to look into the, uh, this drywall that was imported from China. And apparently it's been having a, a bad impact on the uh, indoor air quality in uh, Florida and now Louisiana and other places. And there's talk about a class action suit, and uh, a couple of governors have asked the federal government to look into that. So we've got an update on that. We've also got an update on, uh, you know, the California Air Resources Board has been looking at different models of air cleaners. And uh, they've published their first certifications of ones that have met the testing and uh, certification requirements for the new air cleaner regulation, some ones from 3M, Hunter Fan, and, and other places. And uh, that information is available at uh, www.arb.ca.gov. And we've got an update on that in the newspaper. So those are some of the uh, stories you'll find in the uh, April issue with Indoor Environment Connections uh, at ieconnections.com. Thank you so much, Tom. We appreciate you joining us. Let's uh, get back to the second half here. Hello, Ed. Uh, do we have? There we go. We got you unmuted, Ed. Um, I'm curious. Um, Dr. Wah was talking about these floor-level uh, diffusers and registers. Have you? I, I'm sure with all the remodeling you do, you, you're involved with with schools. Um, you've been involved with some of those types of issues. Did you have any comments or suggestions? Well, it's, it's really very simple. Uh, if you're conveying air, it needs to be you know, basically clean and, and dry, and uh, it may be difficult to achieve that in some of those systems. Uh, so they need to think about maintenance and think about design so that these things can be maintained uh, before they you know, jump into a, a fatty type of approach to uh, buildings. I'm curious. I, I was wondering what your thoughts would be on that. And then... Uh Oh, there was another one that came up. Uh, well, let me go to Cliff real quick and see if he's got a. a oh, I had a. Uh, yeah. I had one quick thought. Um, uh, here I am in Maryland, and um, you know, really glad to hear that I can, uh, you know, based on this decision by the Virginia legislature, uh, I can cross the border and now be in a mold-free environment. So I, I wish to give a shout out to the Virginia legislators. And, uh, you can't fool all the people all the time. That's my view on politics. I understand. Let's go to Cliff. Cliff? Yeah, Ed, I'd like to know whether or not you've had any experience with or any comments on what is known as green cleaner. Uh, that's one of my uh, real major health concerns at this time. Uh, you know, the... Uh, uh, the mantra of the day is to uh, be worried about the, uh, you know, the toxic effects of bleach and disinfectant. And uh, we have all these uh, 
companies out there advertising and, and glad to sell us so-called green cleaning products. I, I've done an evaluation of that, and it's uh, actually going to be uh, published uh, as a, a paper in a few weeks by the Journal of Environmental Health, uh, looking at the ability of green cleaning products to achieve some basic cleaning and health protection objectives. For example, uh, you know, how are they on, on uh, surface uh, uh, viruses that cause cold and flus? You know, never mind these exotic illnesses. Uh, now, I've got kids in elementary school, and they're bringing us home uh, colds and flus all the time. And uh, we used to think it was important to keep the surfaces <laughs> disinfected uh, from these snotty kids. <laughs> uh, no offense, kids. And uh, uh, so my review shows that most of the green cleaning products are essentially useless on this. And also I looked at uh, surface mold control. And, uh, for example, the use of, of bleach is... Uh, very well documented to not only kill uh, mold, but also to denature the, the proteins that are responsible uh, for allergies. And uh, you know, this is a, 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 a very effective product to use. And my experience, you know, we work with restorers and maintenance and custodial people. They just follow the label. They're going to be safe. And if you're worried about sensitive occupants in the building, you do it after hours and under good ventilation, give it a little time to dissipate. And uh, disinfection is a, a, a real uh, public health protector. And this switch away to the green products uh, is, is actually, uh, we're, we're regressing from protecting our public health. You know, not that I have an opinion on it. <laughs> <laughs> Cliff, did you want to follow up? You want me to go? No, no. I was just going to tell him that I agree with him, and I'm just <laughs> glad that someone smarter than me uh, came to the same conclusion. Well, we we will. Uh, I'm sure we'll have other opinions on that down the road. We're going to I'm bring sure. some people well, in and uh, get their points on it. But uh, I I can certainly see both sides of the issue. And uh, what I'd like to do now is go to another issue that uh, we've talked about, and that's fire damage restoration. Ed, what, what are your thoughts on, on how fire damage restoration is done and, and how, oh, I guess, how, what type of health hazard improper fire damage restoration can be, you know, can leave behind and, and what kind of problem it is for the people doing the remediation? Well, I think the uh, issues following a fire and, and the cleanup are, uh, have tremendous health implications, are very unresolved. And I look at it this way. I think Stacky Botrys has a good press agent and, and Soot doesn't. And all the attention and, and the research box has been you know, shifted over to mold and moisture, which we pretty well understood 25 years ago. And uh, meanwhile, we have, uh, you know, when, it, when a uh, good thorough restoration job is allowed, it is done by the contractor with, with a a very careful assessment, and it's usually very effective. However, we don't understand the, the exposures. Uh, we don't understand uh, exactly uh, uh, how effective these are, what are the residual exposures uh, in these uh, you know, previously uh, uh, burned environments. And uh, uh, I've proposed that we need to do more research in this area, and I notice that you know, we're available uh, indoor air quality consultants we're called in 99% of the time to deal with a, 
alleged or real mold problem were never called in in fire restoration unless the place was soaked and grew into a tropical rainforest. And then they don't care about the exposure to, to all the combustion byproducts and, and soot and, and plastic decomposition products and all that stuff. You know, they say, make this mold free. So that's, that's kind of where the money is. You know, Ed, I don't want people to get the wrong impression here. Now, I, I, I don't think you're saying that damp buildings or, you know, and obviously a damp building is going to have mold in it, don't have possible health effects uh, connected with them. Is that accurate? Oh, that's, uh, I guess I'm say, wait, reading the internet scuttlebutt about me, that's, that's very misunderstood. Uh, I strongly believe from the scientific literature and my field experience that uh, mold growth in the building and damp buildings uh, certainly can cause health problems, particularly in the more sensitive individuals, and that uh, unresolved water damage and mold growth is, is uh, essentially an action level. You need to, to do something about it. Uh, and uh, definitely ex- accept that there are health problems and you need to uh, get rid of the mold growth in buildings. Uh, I do have an uh, open mind and, and there are unanswered issues as far as other health effects and while that's the big deal in all these lawsuits, I, I think it's uh, not that important an issue. There are different opinions, uh, but the fact is that uh, uh, when you have mold growing in a building and unresolved water damage, you, you need to fix it. Cliff? Um, I was thinking of maybe of changing subjects and, and maybe uh, asking Ed to enlighten our listeners about some of his experience as an expert witness, because I suspect that Well, that's to tell you the truth. That's the least, uh, my least favorite part of the consulting work. Uh, I'd much rather be in the mold of, uh, so to speak, of, of solving problems, working with people to uh, uh, take care of the environmental concerns in buildings. And uh, as the mold explosion has progressed, we've been hired more and more as expert witnesses. And again, unlike the rumors spreading on the Internet about me, which are kind of silly, uh, we, we're not defense-hired guns. I've worked on both the plaintiffs and the defense side. Uh, for me to take on a case, I insist we take a, uh, an assessment based on good science. We're independent. We're not going to let lawyers or anybody tell us what to think. And so I have been in some cases, and these are very frustrating in that they're usually settled and – uh, there are usually multiple investigators studying the same uh, site uh, for the case, and the technical disagreements are uh, are never resolved. Uh, I'm actually preparing a paper now com- comparing the methodologies used in, in some of these uh, litigation cases. I'll be presenting it at the, at the ASTM uh, conference this summer in Vermont on standardizing approaches to mold. Ed, can you tell us a little bit more about that conference? That's the Johnson Conference? Yeah, it's one of a a series of conferences sponsored by ASTM uh, called the Johnson Conference. It's a a forum for cutting-edge presentations, uh, rather informal type of setting. Uh, The publication is optional there, and there's a lot of time devoted to bringing in a mix of opinions and uh, 
and discussions of, of controversial issues in the field. And uh, the uh, speaker lineup has, has been set, and uh, I think you said you might be able to post the ASTM announcement on your website, and people can take a look and see if they want to join us for a nice summer in Vermont. And if you get bored with the uh, scientific presentations, we're having a, a labs versus everyone else volleyball game. And I'm putting on my other hat as special ed, the musician, and we're putting on a Vermont musical extravaganza on one evening. Excellent. We will certainly be happy to put a link to that up on the website. Ed. Cliff? You know, I, I, I guess back to the green cleaning thing again, and, and there's something that we had chatted about, I guess, uh, before the show went live. Why are, or why, I guess, why does what's going on outside in terms of the environment and global warming and VOCs and all this other stuff, why does that impact what's going on inside of a building with these cleaning products? Well, I, I certainly don't like to go by, beyond my expertise. I, I think there's, uh, you know, certainly something to be. Uh, concerned about with global warming, warming, and the uh, the way this relates to the indoor environment, in my mind, is is uh, the energy conservation would be very helpful, no matter what kind of severity or problem we have, if we were more conservative about our energy, and that's something we can do about indoors. Unfortunately, I, I think there's a lot of hype and and sidetracking, uh, but we can measure a few VOCs in the air, and these are. Uh, theoretically poisonous to people and worse of all poisonous to the fish when a little bit goes down the drain and uh, that's it seems to me the rationale behind this green cleaning product market and uh, what I recommend in my environmental health journal paper is to define your cleaning objectives and make sure your product will achieve that and uh, you know the the legal and, and traditional way is to look at the EPA list of registered uh, sanitizers, uh, if you really want to achieve control of viruses and, and uh, surface fungi. And one of the things that, that kind of mystifies me is that we have within the EPA, on one side of the hall, the indoor air division saying bleach is horrible, don't use it, and the uh, pesticides division saying we've registered bleach and quats and phenolics to control organisms. And uh, there seems to be a disconnect there that uh, I guess it's bureaucracy. Well, an interesting thing about bleach is, I guess within the last week, um, the Clorox folks have been able to get a label claim, actually, for C. diff spores, actually, with uh, an industri- you know, with their industrial products. So that's pretty exciting news, and I think that's going to be good for them. I wasn't aware of that, Cliff. That's that's great information for the listeners. That's a tough one. I I know you're you've been involved in the antimicrobial world for years. Um, my understanding is that's a tough one to get on your label. Yeah, C. diff spores, and I, that's the first. Uh, and I, the press release said that it was the first and only product, and I believe that. Ed, any comment? Well, uh, I learned in sanitarian school bleach was our old delete. Properly diluted bleach was our all-purpose solution to pathogens out there. And uh, I don't think the science has really changed in the last 25 years. You just have to use it carefully, and, and, uh, and of course, you don't want to damage things, so you might need to go to other products that disinfect and aren't as corrosive as bleach. And, and, and you restoration people know all that. 
you know, one of the interesting things with bleach, and that you know, it's uh, this hypochlorous acid, which is contained within chlorine bleach, that's actually the most effective antimicrobial. And you can you can do better, believe it or not, with bleach diluted 49 parts to one with water than you can do with straight bleach in, in terms of killing spores and all sorts of other things. If you play with the pH, you need to get the pH below 5. And believe it or not, it's sporicidal at, at, at that point. The challenge is, is that you can't bottle it or package it. It doesn't have a significant shelf life. You know, the shelf life is probably uh, maybe 12 or 15 hours at that point. So, again, it, it's pretty interesting, and I'm just surprised that the Clorox people really haven't exploited that. Interesting, gentlemen. Well, why don't we go to what we call a roundup? It seems like we're already rounding up here, and I have a listener question that was texted in. We'll get to that, guest 22, and uh, let's go to the roundup. Gentlemen, I've brought, uh, let's see, we brought Tom Scarlett back on. We've got Dr. Dieter back on. Tom, let's go to you first. Any questions or comments? Um, no, not really. I'm just uh, very happy to be on uh, IAQ Radio. I've been learning a lot, uh, listening to all you experts. And uh, no, I don't, uh, don't have anything right now. All right. Well, thanks for joining us today. We, again, appreciate you uh, popping in and helping us out with uh, the news. Very segment. happy to be here. How about Dr. Dieter? Dieter? Yeah, well, I, as usual, learned something, too, which is great. I like that. Um, but, no, I mean, nothing uh, nothing major. The only thing is I may have to rent a bass and dust it off, and uh, a banjo and a bass sounds good together. That's uh, <laughs> a little bit of rhythm back there, yeah. We'll get you and Ed uh, working together at the Johnson Conference, huh? That would be fine with me. I have no problem with that. Excellent. Let's go over to uh, uh, Cliff. My co-host, Any, anything you wanted to finish with, Cliff? Well, I, I guess I just wanted to uh, number one thank Ed for for being with us, and I, I guess the second, I guess just one final comment: Would you consider yourself in your professional life a conformist or a non-conformist, and why? Well, I, I'd have to admit, I'm, nowadays I'm often embarrassed to tell people what what I do for a living because of the general reputation of, of many of the practitioners. Uh, and, uh, you know, I approached this. Uh, I'm a third-generation scientist. I'm trained in traditional environmental health. And I guess my problem is I don't care if I'm politically correct or not, and, and I guess that makes me a nonconformist these days. Well, Ed, I've got and I've probably managed to offend a whole bunch of people out there and, uh, and uh, basically take a look at my science and... Uh, you know, saying nasty things about me on the internet is really kind of silly. <laughs> well, and I've got uh, a text question. I've got a few others that um, I wanted to ask you. So I'm going I'm to take uh, my liberties here as a as a host, and I'll, I'll first get this guest question here. When advising over mold, how do you determine what building occupants are potentially susceptible to health problems during remediation? Uh, this is. To be precise and conclusive is a strictly a medical function. Uh, 
sometimes we work in healthcare facilities and populations in there uh, may be very, very susceptible to infection and you need to uh, have a real uh, high standard of, of care in your assessment and your, your cleanup when you're dealing with those types of people. Uh, but basically the minimum approach is to identify and get rid of mold growth. And uh, uh, so whether or not there is proof of susceptibility is, is not so important in some cases. We, we like to have the, uh, the medical opinion in there, but uh, a lot of our projects, we don't have that luxury. Would I be correct in saying that you, when you design these projects, you have some type of containment in place and that you kind of treat everyone the same, whether they're susceptible or not? Oh, containment is another sore point with me. I don't know, we're running out of time, but uh, my bottom line is we don't want the occupants exposed during or after the mold work. Uh, in, in construction sites or vacated buildings, uh, containment becomes optional to us. They're, they're very much uh, can uh, expedite cleanup if you contain the stuff. And uh, smaller projects or unoccupied areas, we, we often go with partial cleanup. A lot of times the air scrubbers instead of negative air. Uh, if we're stuck in an environment with, that's occupied, we have a large buffer zone. We just get everybody out of there. If it's a healthcare facility or susceptible population, uh, we really will consider full containment, even if it's under the magical New York City numbers on square footage. Uh, so it really depends on the environment you're working in and uh, what type of uh, – how you want to approach the cleanup. And, and, and there really are advantages to containing so you don't have to clean it up after. Okay, and I have another text question here. Do you happen to know off the top of your head the dates of the Johnson Conference? Oh, uh, July 13th through 15th, this That's coming July. Very good. We will try and uh... – get another show on, on the ASTM standard before then, if possible, with uh, maybe with your help here, Ed. I have another one I want to uh, quickly run by you. Any tips that you can give investigators or remediators, maybe one or two of your uh, out of your bag of tricks over the past so many years? Oh, follow the moisture and don't listen to the mold testers. It kind of boils down to that. Follow the moisture. All right. And last but not least, we always like to ask before we go, is there anything you'd like to add that we did not cover? Oh, no. And, in fact, uh, uh, if there's time to stick on another song of mine, uh, I always like to promote my musical career in case the economy goes down and I, I'm not an environmental consultant anymore. Well, we're certainly going to do that, and we hope some people stick around for uh, – actually, we've got – which one are we going to play, Chris, the – full version of Don't Mess With My IAQ. Cliff? Uh, don't forget the sponsors. Absolutely. Let's Before we go, I want to thank the sponsors. And Cliff, do you have our guest for next week information? I do. I do. Let's I, I emailed it to you. Let's thank our sponsors, and then you can make that announcement, and then we're going to play Ed's song on the way out here. Okay, let's start with our, our newest sponsor, which, of course, is Gray Wolf, uh, Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions. They are uh, Sensing Solutions, the leader in portable mobile PC-based indoor environmental monitors and reporting software. Check them out at wolfsensing.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Learn about them at legends-enviro.com. 
Microband Systems, the microbial management company at microbandsystems.com. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IEQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising informational available at ieconnections.com. Dry Ease Products, providing equipment for drying water damaged homes and buildings. Dry Ease is first in drying solutions at dri-eaz.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at jondon.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their products and services. Okay, before we go, I want to thank this week's guest, Ed Light and Cliff. Who do we have next week? Uh, next week, uh, Joe and listeners, we have Mr. Elliot Harrison from the consulting firm of Lewis and Harrison. They are experts in regulatory affairs, and with their expertise is the registration of antimicrobials and pesticides. We'll talk about what's required in registering these products, uh, the whole process of dealing with EPA, enforcement issues, label claims, etc. Excellent. Sounds like a great show, Cliff. Okay, before we go, I want to make sure I thank Cliff the Z-Man for joining us here this week. Also, the wingman, Chris Boisel, our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Weil, Tom Scarlett for helping us with IE Connections, What's News. And on the way out, we're going to play one of Ed's, uh, one of Ed's compositions here with, uh, let me get the, the band name correct. I want to make sure I've got this right. The all-new genetically altered Jug Band and the author of There's a Fungus Among Us, but I think we're going to play the IAQ song now. There's no Mahali smell in my car. ETS in my favorite ball. So don't you mess with my IAQ. If you do anything, mess with my IAQ. I'm losing my hair, always have to go. Bet it's my office cause I told you so. Don't you mess with my IAQ. Oh, if you do anything, mess my IAQ. Got my mold sniffing dog, radon testing bat. Dig my band, the non-allergenic cat. So don't you mess with my IAQ. If do anything, mess my IAQ. Excellent. Thanks again, Ed. Welcome. Thank <laughs> you.